Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it's a, a privilege yet again to come uh, and gather this morning to worship you. Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning that you'll impact our hearts afresh through the power of your spirit, that we will be able to glimpse and grasp the length, the height, the breadth and the depth of your amazing love and grace to us. We thank you for this letter that was penned many years ago to Ephesus. We thank you for what we have been learning about your way of salvation. And Father, we thank you that it is by grace we have been saved through faith. Nothing of ourselves, no no merit of our own can in any way draw us to yourself. So we thank you for your superabounding grace. We thank you for the message of the gospel. And we pray this morning as we study your word that our hearts will be open and that we attentive and you will shape us, refine us by your spirit, we pray. In Christ's powerful name, amen. Last week we uh, started looking at Ephesians chapter 3 and we're going to continue that uh, this week. It is a bit of a pivotal chapter in, in the book. It ends the, what you would call the doctrinal section of Ephesians. And from Ephesians 4 onwards it, it becomes a lot more practical But Paul in his major thesis statement and his major statement about how this all works, what he's trying to do is he's saying, you must understand who God is. You must understand how God has provided salvation. You must understand who you are in light of God's salvation. And by doing so, that should shape you. Through the power of His Spirit, it will shape you to be compelled by his love. You see, last week as we read the first uh, seven verses of chapter 3, we saw that uh, Paul, he started to pray. In verse 1, he started, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. He, he started to get before the Lord and pray, but like any good preacher, he digressed. And uh, he decided, okay, the, the things that I've been mulling over, the things that Jew and Gentile are now being joined together, are now near and no longer far off, are one people of God. These things are incredibly rich, and I've just got to tell you a little bit more about that. So in verses 2 to 13 of chapter 3, he starts digressing and he starts describing the mystery of Christ. Last week we we learned that this mystery was revealed to Paul by means of a divine revelation. Last week we discovered that, that this mystery was utterly and completely unknown until it was revealed. And it was revealed to Paul and to the holy apostles and prophets 
in the New Testament era. And last week we also discovered that the content of the mystery. What is the content of the mystery? And it was this new people of God. This union of one body on fully equal terms, Jew and Gentile believers. Shaped and made anew because of the gospel of grace. And we discussed last week that this was, you know, sometimes we do not understand this. We don't understand the hatred that separated these two people groups. And Paul is proclaiming to this church in Ephesus who's made up of these people groups, you are one in Christ. You are a new people of God. And this is an incredible mystery that Christ through his spirit dwells within you in love. And you have complete unity. That was a little bit of a summary from last week. And this week, let's uh, grab our Bibles and we'll read from verse 8. I'll just read down to verse 13 at this juncture and then we'll continue later in the, the sermon with the rest of the, the text. So he, what he's doing here, he's moving from explaining his role, his, his role in administering the mystery... And now he's saying, what is the purpose of the mystery? So verses 8 to 13 is outlining the purpose of this mystery. Okay, this mystery that's been revealed, what is the purpose in it being revealed? And that's what we get to in these verses. To me, verse 8, though I'm of the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. As mentioned, this is an incredibly intense and personal encounter that, that uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians about. And he's starting to outline the purpose of the mystery. Before he does, you notice that he, he in verse 8, he just emphasizes afresh the way God's grace has touched his own life. Because he describes himself. He describes himself in a way that he's the very least of all the saints. Previously in the New Testament, he has described himself as being the least amongst the apostles. Here in this portion, he says, I'm the least amongst all the saints. And this isn't a false humility. This is a, this is a, a man's heart who's on fire for Christ and his gospel. Realizing that it's this grace that has changed him and shaped him. And, and he, he says, comparable to anybody else, 
I'm least in size, a mountain dignity. dignity. He uses the word twice. I'm the very least. And it just gives us a glimpse into God's, uh, into Paul's thankfulness for God's grace and mercy. This is a wonderful example to us who minister in the church at whatever level, whether it's in a volunteer capacity, whether it's in a staff capacity. Because this is the heart of why we minister. Our hearts should reflect the fact that we are bought by God's grace. His grace has been given for us to serve. In the context of this passage, Paul goes on and said, specifically, the grace that has been given to him was to preach to the Gentiles. We read that through the Gospel of Acts. It clearly is evident in Ephesus. The church is predominantly made up of Gentile believers. He spent three years there. He ministered to them daily for four hours in the school of Tyrannius. So he understood that that was all done by God's grace, and, but he clearly also understood that his purpose was to preach to people who do not know about Christ. And the subject of his preaching, he describes in this way. I'm preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what the ESV says. The NASB says, the unfathomable riches of Christ. This is the content of his proclamation. This word unfathomable is a really, really interesting word. and It was used in, at this time to talk about and to refer to something that was impossible to understand on the basis of very, very careful examination or investigation. So when he starts thinking about the gospel and what he's proclaiming, he is, he is just overwhelmed with the fact that it's, it's impossible to be traced out, this magnificent grace of God. It's inscrutable. It's incomprehensible. The word's only used twice in the New Testament, here and in Romans chapter 11. And in Romans 11, Paul uses it in a very similar way. Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That's the content of the proclamation. You know, this, this form literally means, uh, in the Greek literature, it's used for a tracker that is 
Someone who pursues another by tracing their footprints. That's the unsearchable way of the gospel. The second purpose that we see here in this text is, yes, he's proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. The second thing he wants to do, he wants to bring to light the plan of the mystery or the administration of the mystery. Two words here, bring and light, are uh, the same word. So it's almost like he's saying, I, I want to I preach with a double illumination. I want to bring to light the incredible, the incredible, indescribable, gospel and by bringing to the light he wants to make Christ seen and known he brings to light in this context the explanation of God's divine plan for like everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things and this in a sense is this plan is God's divine grace being poured out. And God's saving purposes, as we've seen throughout these first three chapters. Only God can perform this illumination of his divine grace upon the saints. And Paul affirms the fact that this particular mystery has, has been secret for a long time. It's been concealed in God for a very long time. And Paul also correlates this mystery in some way with uh, God's creatorial power. So the hidden mystery and the revealed divine plan of grace is God's. He is the author behind it all. The concealing and the revealing are part of his sovereign will. And then we move to the result. So we have Paul saying, I'm the least of all the saints. God's grace has infiltrated my life to such a degree that I have to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and his plan of the mystery which was revealed but now was, is revealed that was, was concealed. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you realize that this message, this revealed mystery has something to do with you and I through the church. It's 
See, according to this verse here, Paul's preaching and bringing to light the unfathomable riches of Christ will result in the revelation of the manifold wisdom of God. That's quite outstanding, isn't it, really? It's quite terrifying also. That God's manifold wisdom, his multifaceted wisdom, this word manifold is like, if you look at a diamond... Right, evidently when you look at a diamond, I don't own diamonds. Um, so if anyone would like to give me one, that's okay. But evidently if you look at a diamond, you put it up in the light, the, the light goes through the diamond and, and what happens is that the, the prism of colors go in various ways. All over the show. And God's wisdom is described like that. It's of differing colors, it is a wisdom that is greatly diversified and it's abounding in variety. And this manifold wisdom of God is, is being manifest through the church. You say, how? Because you're saved by the same grace. God has taken you from death into life. He has taken you from being uh, far away to being near. To being separate, to being one people of God. And that's his multifaceted, his diamond of wisdom that has been reflected in the church. And some fathomable wisdom is is also seen in creation. So I think that's why that link is there about God being creator of all things. Because the same diversity we see in creation is the same diversity we see in the new birth. God's wisdom is beyond measure and surpasses all previous knowledge. And you see, the church, you and I, are... God's reflective agent for his wisdom. And the natural question is then, well, to whom are we reflecting God's wisdom? The answer is given in the verse. We are reflecting it to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So who, who does that refer to? Uh, it could be either good or, or evil created powers. But I think in the context of this letter, in the context of Ephesians, there can be little doubt that Paul considered these figures, these rulers and authorities, to be thoroughly evil spirits who exercise power over an unbelieving world. And we see that in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And particularly in Ephesians 6, verse 12, where it says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the church, the newly created church, makes known to the, 
the evil spiritual rulers and authorities, the vastness of God's creative wisdom. Not only did he create the universe with endless variety, but he's also began to restore the crowning achievement of his creation, you and I. To its original unity. You see, these evil powers are conquered because of the cross of Christ. Sometimes when we live our Christian life, we don't understand that enough. But the cross of Christ has has made known the manifold wisdom of God that you and I are saved by grace. Multifaceted wisdom. Not only are these powers conquered by the cross of Christ and they're beneath his feet as we read in the end of chapter 1. Let's just read that together. Ephesians 1 says this. And he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, verse 20, 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So these powers are also conquered and are under and beneath the church's feet because Christ is the head of the church so therefore these powers are conquered at the feet of the church that should give you great encouragement you think about, you think about the Ephesian church this myriad of idolatry this temple of Artemis we've talked about this the blatant idolatry and worship of, of Diana and Paul's writing and says hey Everything is subject, all that evil is subject to the cross of Christ and to the church. You see, these Christians knew what it, what it meant to, to be subject to earthly rulers and authorities. The Roman Empire, uh, def, you know, deified their reigning emperors. If you were, a, if you were a, uh, an emperor of Rome, you were worshipped. And by the way, if you are the emperor of North Korea, you are worshipped as well. Interesting, Jules and I saw a documentary during this week where there was a, allowed a camera crew in there to look at a, a particular part of North Korea. And we were just floored at the worship for this man. So this is not a first century phenomena. So... These Christians here, though, would have understood the, the, the pressure that was being placed by the empire on them to, to worship the emperor through their governors and through their magistrates and being a loyal citizen, that would have been part of what you do. You would have earned your living by that. And a majority of those at Ephesus were slaves. So they knew what earthly rulers and authorities were and they could see firsthand the, the potency of evil in the heavenly places around about them as they had idol after idol but Paul says to them and encourages them I want to tell you folks there is a greater power and it's been won at the cross
God's is superior in power. And this would be an immense encouragement. I want to turn it to us. It's an immense encouragement to us as well. We live in a secular society which is not a lot different to Ephesus. But you realize that all the evil that we see day in and day out is subject to God. God will judge the evil thoughts and intentions of the human heart because he is superior and he is powerful. So God's wisdom, this beautifully complex, manifold wisdom reflects his grace and his work of salvation in individuals and corporately within the church. And as a church body, we display his manifold wisdom to evil powers. We, the redeemed, are reflected agents of God's manifold wisdom. In verse 11, he goes back and, and just says, this mystery, this plan that's been revealed has come from eternity past. It's a prominent theme of these first three chapters. Everything involved in redemption of his people, of us, and the reuniting of creation in Christ, including the revelation of the mystery, happened according to the conscious decision of God prior to the beginning of time. God's plan was not new. It had been known from eternity. And this plan is known through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It summarizes the preeminence of Christ as Lord over his church because he has fulfilled the eternal purpose of his Father. And his riches are unfathomable, but are made known to the church for the glory of God. A further result of this mystery is more of a personal result. Because verse 12 tells us because of this eternal purpose has been known, because the mystery has been revealed, we now have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We uh, simply don't just have access to God. We have boldness and confident access, or we have the boldness to enter confidently. This one new people of God of which we are part of, we have this incredible right to go into the presence of God and petition him. In the Old Testament, you, if you're a Jew, you had, to, you had to go by way of sacrifice, by way of bulls and offerings. That's the only way you could enter. You can read that in Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10. We're no longer required to access this God by a high priest. But we have access by the blood of Christ. And we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Grace. 
And see, this is a little bit revolutionary for these people. This new terms of access is completely countercultural to what they grew up understanding. And this comes by faith. We have the same bold access when we have our faith and trust in Christ. And that's a tremendous truth. We have access to God through saving faith based on Christ and Christ alone. He is our access. And this access is continuous. The verb that's used to describe the access is a, what we call a present active verb, so it's always ongoing. It tells us that we have free and open access to God through saving faith in Christ. We are no longer far off, we are near. The mystery is revealed. All things are in Christ. And the final thought in verse 13, he, he just encourages them and says, hey, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart about my imprisonment. I'm here because of the sake of the gospel. Brian Chappell sums up this portion of scripture really well. And he summarizes it in this way. Just as Paul's sin makes the grace of God more apparent, the uniting of sinners in the body of Christ makes the grace of God more brilliant, even to the hosts of heaven. Just as Paul's sin makes the grace of God more apparent, the uniting of sinners in the body of Christ makes the grace of God more brilliant. As followers of Christ, we need to be captured by this grace. Captured by this wonderful mystery, this wonderful mysterion. That we are reconciled with God, we are redeemed with God, we have peace with God. Through our faith in Christ. Let's read the next verses. We've got a prayer and a doxology to conclude the chapter. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you, you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than, that, than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul now finally gets back to his prayer. He started in 3.1 and he finally gets back to it. He falls on his knees in prayer. You know what? A prayer from a position of power, that is. It's a prayer from the position of power. 
He was on his knees. It shows his, his humility towards who he, who he was addressing. After just communicating by entering in the access with boldness and confidence, he shows us a, a model of that with this prayer. He wants to, the readers to know that he prays for God to strengthen them in the inner being, in the human being, in the human being, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts and they might become strong enough to grasp the vast dimensions of Christ's love for them. The ultimate goal in this prayer is that the readers might be filled up with all the fullness of God. What a wonderful prayer. Filled up with all the fullness of God. This prayer, I believe, is broken into a couple of sections, and we'll just break this up very briefly for you. Verses 14 to 17 is a, a prayer for a divine expression of power. And if you notice it, it's actually quite Trinitarian in its nature. Firstly, in verse 16, Paul is praying that he wants the Father, God the Father, to provide his riches. So the natural question there, what are the riches that will strengthen us? He's explained this already through the letter. This is almost like a bit of a summary of the first three chapters. And uh, the riches of God are one that our spiritual debt is cancelled. Could be one of them. So two, he's, he's made us alive, even though we were dead in sin. He seated us in the heavenlies to show the incomparable riches of his grace and expressed in kindness to us in Christ. Get that in the start of chapter 2. I think above all, and this is a, a thing I think I want you to remember, and when he asks the Father to provide his riches, as we've read through these chapters, God's riches are revealed to us in the currency of his grace and mercy. God's riches are revealed in the currency of his grace and mercy. So this grace and mercy saves us from death. It gives us eternal security and it enables us to proclaim that wonderful message of kindness and mercy to others. Christ is the source of these riches. It is in him we have redemption, forgiveness of sin. And the question here is, do you understand these riches in your own life personally? Have you placed your faith and trust in the one who provides this, these riches of grace and mercy. To do so, you need to repent of your sin and you fall at the mercy of God. Place your faith and trust in Christ, for He alone is the only one that provides eternal salvation. He alone is the only one that gives you an inheritance. He alone is the only one that gives you incredible riches beyond what we can even comprehend or imagine. To follow Christ, you've got to deny self. Repent of how far you are away. Dead men don't walk. Ephesians 2 is about that, right? If you're dead and you trespass in the sin, there's no way you can bridge the gap of salvation. It's only through faith in Christ. 
So the first part, he appeals to the Father to provide his riches. The second part, he says he appeals to the Spirit to provide his power. Verse 16, second part of 16. And this is also a concept that is not new. It's been rich through this letter so far. Paul has spoken about the power in our inner being as the resurrection power of Christ that resides in believers and makes us spiritually alive. The end of chapter 1 has got that. Chapter 2, verse 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, has taken us from death and transferred us into life. And when the Spirit is within us, when the Spirit is shaping and refining us, what is the outcome of that? That this power is there so that sin no longer has a hold over your life. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a sec. Thirdly, he prays for the Son to provide his life through faith. So we've got, he prays the Father to provide his provide his riches, we've got the Spirit to provide his power, and then we have the Son to provide his life through Christ. Through faith. He prays that, he asks that Christ may dwell in their hearts richly. They are in Christ. And he wants them to realize afresh that that's their identity. His blood has has redeemed them. His blood has forgiven them, just the same as you and I have placed our faith and trust in Christ. His blood has redeemed and forgiven us, and we are reconciled to God. Hallelujah. See, the Father wills for the Spirit to be the instrument by which Christ takes over our heart and produces, and, and produces this newfound identity. It was interesting, it was St. Patrick's Day yesterday. Who celebrated St. Patrick's Day? Oh, I've got no Irishman here. Or you just a bit embarrassed about the culture. Okay, it's okay. St. Patrick's Day. Does anyone know who St. Patrick is? St. <laughs> Patrick was a wonderful saint. Okay, believe it or not. Wonderful follower of Christ. So I thought it'd be interesting just to, to quote to you one of St. Patrick's prayers since we're a day after St. Patrick's Day. Because it relates really closely to to what Paul is saying here. I'm not canonizing it, okay? It's just an example. St. Patrick said this in one of his famous prayers. Christ be with and within me. Christ behind me and before me. Christ beneath me and above me. May your salvation, Lord, be always ours this day and forevermore. He got it. He got what Paul was saying here. That Christ be our all in all. Because you know, without God's riches, we are poor. Without God's spirit, we are helpless. And without Christ's life, we are dead. And what Paul has done here is he's given the wonderful, gracious alternative. Pray for one another that we will experience the riches of God, that we will experience the power of his spirit in our inner being to shape and 
conform us and that Christ will reign in our hearts. The back end of the prayer from 17 to 19 starts to go down this track and it's a prayer for the personal reception of the power. And it's summed up by two metaphors. He uses two metaphors, rooted and grounded. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He uses two metaphors, one's from the agricultural realm and one's from the architectural realm. Rooted and grounded. The figures of the farmer and the builder are to illustrate that believers are firmly rooted and grounded in love. That's what we're grounded in, in love. The shrewd and foundation of love refers to God having chosen them, predestined them, bestowed them in, in the beloved, redeemed them, made them a heritage, sealed them with the Holy Spirit, made them alive, raised and seated them in the heavenlies and placed them equally in one person in the body of Christ. Therefore, for the believer, for us, the origin of our love is God's love. So then, how would you measure God's love? How do you measure God's love? You see, because when we start understanding God's love, this will cause and determine your actions. So how does Paul measure God's love? He answers by saying, you must grasp how great Christ's love is to measure God's love. He stretches our minds to the limits of understanding to perceive the measure of God's care for those in his church. Paul says God's love for his people is as long as eternity past. It's so wide and includes all nations. It is so high as to ring praises from angels in heaven and so deep as to cancel the claims of hell on our souls. Knowledge of such magnitude grants more than comfort, more than assurance, and even more than joy. Knowledge like this shows Christ's power in you. So how do we measure God's love? Christ's love is as wide as the world. Christ's love is as long as eternity. It's a long time. Christ's love is as high as heaven. And Christ's love is as deep as hell. And see, this is important as we grasp Christ's love for us. This here is a wonderful statement. Immeasurable love. You see, love is a, a very passionate thing. Love stirs emotions. It stirs affections. And in our Christian walk, as we walk this world together in, in unity with the Spirit, it's important to understand what fuels our passions. 
The power for change is, is only developed through your affection. So if you want to change a course or direction in your life, what, say if you have an issue with temptation, say if you have a, a, an issue with some besetting sin, what changes your behavior? Not a whole set of rules around that, okay? That's not what changes your behavior. What changes your behavior is the affections of your heart. See, love that motivates us is the power that drives us to change action. If greater love means greater power, then this has a profound impact on how we try to minister to one another and how we try to parent our children, how we try and help others, and how we honor Christ. But you know what? When it comes to temptation and things like this, I'll just throw this out of here, out there, out of here, out there. You know what causes us to stumble at temptation? We do precisely what we love. And so we have a greater love for the things of God than the things of the, this world, then we'll consistently fail in our temptations. And that's the message of here. That's the message of Paul's prayer. I want Christ's love to dwell in you richly. You know, I can spend many hours talking to people about uh, addictions, compulsions, and recurrent sin. I can talk about mutual accountability. I can talk about the cultivation of godly habits and the exercise of spiritual discipline, which are all very important. But if I don't draw people to the fact that they need to be compelled and motivated by Christ's love, then the gospel in their life is not going to be living and active. When we understand how secure, great, and powerful is this love of God, the response in our hearts must be to love him more, to join with him in the walk of faith to which he calls us. You can just see Paul's burden and encouragement here to these believers. It's the same to us. He wants us to grasp how great Christ's love is so that his fullness would empower us. And then he just flows out with a dox, doxology in the last two verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How much can God do? Abundantly more than we ask. Abundantly more than we think or imagine. How will God do more? According to his power and his sovereignty in your life. And also by working within and through you, through his spirit. No matter how obscure or insignificant your acts of service are on behalf of Christ, when we serve the purposes of our Savior, the glory of the Son of God shines in us with increasing glory because of his power at work within us. He is able. And because of this, to him be glory in the church and in Christ in perpetuity.
We serve a wonderful Saviour. Be this week compelled by the love of Christ. Encourage one another in the love of Christ. There's a wonderful hymn that says, Could we with ink the ocean fill and with the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is amazing. It's amazing. We'll close in prayer. Sorry, we've gone got time for the final song. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that in the quietness of this room that we will resolve to understand your grace more, that we will resolve to love Christ more, that we will resolve as your people to display your manifold wisdom to a world that shuns you, to a world that hates you. Father, encourage us this day. Encourage us to understand your grace, your mercy afresh. Understand that you are able. And it's only in and through you that we have breath and life and service. We pray these things in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen.